Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show I talk to legendary director Richard Eyre about his new movie Alleluia, which focuses on the geriatric ward of an NHS hospital threatened with closure. There's the fallout from the Oscars and the success and a review of the new Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Plus a special report on the legendary TV comic and sit-down comedian Dave Allen. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk, except this week where it's coming to you at 9 because of the rugby. But let's not talk about rugby now. Let's talk about the Oscars. So look, there was great success with an Irish goodbye and indeed our friend and avatar Richard R- Richie Bainham I wasn't the greatest fan of Avatar I'm public record is saying that I hated it really but hats off to him I mean the effects they weren't my cup of tea but they were Oscar winning and uh, I'm delighted any Irish person won an Oscar but I'm a bit disappointed I, I think the Banshees of Inish and should have figured somewhere certainly for Martin McDonough with Best Original Screenplay. I mean, original screenplay. You're not going to get a much more original screenplay than The Banshees of Inish Aaron. Everything Everywhere All at Once is a fine film. It's entertaining. It's inventive. I don't think it was the best movie of the year by any stretch. I don't think that's a movie we're going to be talking about in 10 years' time or even five years' time to any great degree. Uh, I thought The Fablemans was a better movie. I thought Banshees was a better movie. I thought Top Gun was a more entertaining movie, to be honest with you. So, I think they got it wrong, but, you know, what what what, what do they care what I think? But uh, I, I was disappointed, but it's often the way uh, campaigns are launched and there's a long road from January to March, which is the traditional window of the Oscars, and it can be an arc. A movie can go up and very much come down. But look, it was great to see an Irish Goodbye win uh, for best live action short film because I hadn't seen that upon the time of talking to you, but it is available on the RT player. If you have a basic TV package, it seems to me it's available to download. Watch it. It's gorgeous. Turlock and Lorcan are two brothers and it's after the death of their mother. And they're under the watchful eye of Father O'Shea. And the brothers are back together with, with one of them having come back from, from London. And that's Turlock. And now Turlock is faced with his brother, Lorcan, who has Down syndrome, who was on the stage in the Dolby Theatre there, who was sung Happy Birthday to. He's tasked with minding him now that his mother's gone and what's actually going to happen. And like a great short story... A short movie is very hard to have a beginning, middle and end in. They, they, often they don't work for me because they're too slight and they don't have that beginning, middle and end. This has it in spades. And it's also not a movie that, or a short movie that you think it's going to be very dark and sad and it's far from that. Of course there's sadness in it. It's about the death of someone's mother. But it's beautiful. And it's shot with such economy of of language and cinematography. It's absolutely beautiful. I think it's only 20 minutes. It's on the RT player. Watch it. And it is a worthy, worthy winner of that. So I was disappointed uh, by the Oscars, I have to say. I was also disappointed, but Jimmy Kimmel, I didn't think it was a great... Bring Chris Rock back. I know, I know he got slapped and stuff, but bring him back. He was the best one ever. And maybe get Ricky Gervais to do it. You need someone really, really funny. Anyway... But look, as I say, great success for Richie and also for the guys behind An Irish Goodbye. So uh, we salute that. And of course, I should have told you the names of the actors in An Irish Goodbye. James Martin plays the aforementioned Lorcan and Seamus O'Hara plays Turlock. And uh, they are tremendous in An Irish Goodbye. And I haven't even mentioned on Colleen Kewen because uh, I couldn't bring myself to... But look, that was terribly disappointing as well. But you know what? That movie has had a life and it's going to continue to have a life, hopefully, for a long time to come. Oscar or no Oscar. Now in TV this week, something very Irish. My life opened up as an artist. 
when I realized you don't have to resolve every contradiction. In fact, right at the center of a contradiction is the place to be. Is it getting better? Do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame? The unmistakable voice, both talking and singing, of Bono. And you heard The Edge there playing the piano and a very small uh, string section accompanying him. This is a new U2, it's on Disney Plus, U2 Homecoming. And it landed on Friday of this week. I watched it earlier in the week, uh, the 17th of March. And I'm confused with all these holidays and things. But uh, it's U2 back in Dublin doing a show in The Ambassador. Uh, with just Bono and the Edge and some musicians like Glenn Hansard and student musicians is my understanding with a very small audience in the Ambassador in Dublin and helming it all is Dave Letterman who comes to Dublin to spend time with them interview them but Letterman also gets up to strange things like he goes watching people swimming in the 40 foot and 40 foot in Dunleary and you know buys cheese in a fancy cheese shop and stuff like that the Dave Letterman bit is tangential I would say his interviews of them are good but what works for me in it is the performances there's some beautiful music with Bono and the Edge and it's kind of a study of Bono and Edge's friendship I think that the other two guys are are off doing something else and at the end there's a thank you for letting Bono and the Edge you know work on this one by themselves and they're interviewed and they're talking about their career but it's really the musical arrangement and the stripped down versions of some of the U2 songs with Bono and the Edge in The Ambassador I think are gorgeous in this and I'm a big U2 fan and this is probably one for the U2 fans if you know Bono annoys you as I know he does some people I think he's great he's our unofficial patron saint to be honest Uh, but if he annoys you this isn't going to be up your alley if you're a big U2 fan you will love this because the arrangements of the songs are just gorgeous and the friendship between Bono and The Edge is very nicely painted in this. They really are deep soulmates, it seems to me, based on the evidence of this. And in you heard a bit of one there, and at the end of it, instead of sisters and brothers, he sings sister and brother, and he's looking at The Edge. It's beautiful. The exact title of it is, sorry, I should say, is Bono and The Edge, A Sort of Homecoming. That's what it's actually called. Bono and the Edge is sort of homecoming. You'll find it. It's the only thing about you 2 up on Disney+. Plus. But I really enjoyed that. Sticking with kind of musical documentaries, well, it's not really a musical documentary, was a show from last week that I meant to tell you about called George Michael Outed. You may have seen this. It's still there to stream and to watch and download. And you should because it's all about, it's a two-parter, one hour, so it's not that long, all about George Michael famously being caught performing a lewd act in a Beverly Hills public toilet. And it's all about how he responded to that. It's all about how the tabloid press at the time responded to that. A lot of it is told through his cousin, Andros, who was clearly his best friend, it seems, uh, based on this, who's kind of with him through it all. And it has some beautiful moments in it and very poignant moments about their lives together, but also how George Michael really struggled in the 80s and 90s about coming out because it was such a toxic thing to do back then. Uh, We forget. And, you know, at one really sad point in it, he kept hoping he'd meet some woman who would almost convert him, that he'd fall in love with her so much it would mean he wouldn't be gay anymore. What's really troubling about it, I suppose, and unsettling is they interview a lot of tabloid editors and journalists who covered the story at the time, who went to get photos, And they're incredibly unapologetic about how homophobic the coverage was in 1998 when this story landed. And a lot of them basically go, well, that's people wanted homophobia at the time, so we gave them that. Very little self-awareness. Pretty rotten people, I have to say. George Michael comes out great in it because you may have forgotten. What did he do? He went on TV and he said, I'm embarrassed, but I'm not ashamed. Then he made a video all about basically having sex in a toilet called Outside. 
And it was great. It was the greatest two-fingered salute to tabloid journalism ever committed to a disco track. Uh, and it's, it's a great watch. It really is. And what's lovely in it is that there's all these people like Will Young who are talking about what it meant when George Michael came out that way and how he took back the narrative and basically said, yeah, I am gay, so what? And made a video where he was dressed like a policeman in a bathroom. Good on you, George, and you're missed. And uh, George Michael Outed is is a really good watch. It really is. If you've seen that, if you've seen the new U2 doc on Disney, please get in touch with me, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. You're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. The big new cinema release of the week is what we're calling Shazam 2, Shazam Fury of the Gods. A surprise hit, I think, from a couple of years ago was the first Shazam movie. I haven't seen it, but Chris Wasser, arts journalist and film critic, has. Chris, how are you? I'm well, John. How are you? Very good. Listen, I think it's fair to say what I said there, and I'm putting words in your mouth, of course, but the one from 2019, I think it was, was a pretty decent superhero movie with shades of like the greatest American hero and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And it surprised the hell out of everyone, critics and those predicting that it might be, you know, another box office failure for DC. It it clocked in somewhere under the 400 million mark, which again, for a, a you know, a huge comic book movie, it's not, it's not Marvel numbers. It was a hit when DC really needed one. And also it was a DC superhero film that didn't take itself too seriously because it's a bit of a comedy. It kind of, um, I thought it successfully combined uh, the sort of goofball energy of, of big, the Penny Marshall film with the original Richard Donner Superman. You remember when, mm. you know, that, that, that first Superman film came out, there was nothing, there was literally nothing else like that. Donner was, was remembered to have fun with the idea that someone might find it, you know, rather difficult to lead a double life as a superhero. And what would their, what would their ordinary life look like? And how would they hold themselves? It remembered that. And I love that there was even, there was even a scene halfway through that first Shazam film where he's still trying to figure out how to fly. He's trying to, you know, uh, uh, get away from Mark Strong's body that at one stage, the two of them have superpowers. They come crashing into this super, uh, into this uh, uh, shopping mall and he lands in a, in a, in a children's uh, toy store and he lands on a big piano mat. And that is David Sandberg. That's Zachary Levi. That's everybody saying, we know what we're doing here. We know what you're going to compare it to. And it was, <laughs> it was quite sweet and it was funny. And I thought Zachary Levi worked quite well. Of course, we were going to get a sequel, but I'm not sure if it was wise after watching it. Yeah, okay, let's get to that in a second. And just quickly, Shazam, the whole superhero mythology, the basic yeah. premise is he's a fish out of water superhero, was never meant to be one. He sh- he says Shazam, and I feel like I'm on Bo Selecta, Shazam, yep. but, and then he turns into this guy Shazam, who has incredible superpowers. That is it in one, basically. You know, he's this uh, he, Billy Batson in the first film when we meet him. He's a 14-year-old kid who is, you know, a little bit troubled. And he's got like a, a quite a, a tragic family background. He's been in and out of foster homes. But when he goes to his latest foster home, he, uh, you know, his foster sibling is mad about superheroes. Because this is a world where, you know, the superheroes are real, but they still kind of, you know, build comics and toys and everything around them. You know, kids kind yeah. of follow superheroes not on the page but in real life so he becomes something of his psychic or even his teenage kind of alfred figure when billy batson meets this wizard is given these powers and if he says shazam he turns into an adult superhero or he kind of turns into what he himself thinks he would look like if he was a superhero Mm -hmm. it sounds an awful lot more confusing than it is it's actually quite playful quite simple if you can get your head around the fact that a kid says shazam and turns into a superhero film (laughs) then you're flying Absolutely. We can do that. Okay. So there we are. And now we have the sequel, Shazam Fury of the Gods. So what's going on in this one? Well, we pick off, uh, we pick up three years after the last film. So everyone's a little bit older. We're in this foster home where we're actually in the happiest foster home. And, you know, these places do exist, but the happiest foster home in movie history, you know, all of these siblings who actually secretly have superpowers because at the end of the last Shazam, Billy Batson gave some of his powers to his foster siblings and they kind of secretly at night their parents don't know this but they secretly at night you know they're they're stopping crime they're having an awful lot of fun flying around the place and they're figuring themselves out now shazam the original superhero he's not too happy that you know eventually the kids are going to get older they're going to age out they're going to go to college and he kind of wants to hold on to the gang so he's kind of you know he's got these you know separation anxiety issues he's still trying to figure out who he is but he's going to be distracted john because 
Along come these gods, played by Helen Mirren and played by Lucy Liu. They're the daughters of Atlas, and they want this magic staff that Shazam had in the first film. Now, unfortunately, Shazam broke that staff, and that's why they're here. Now, I'm not really sure what they plan to do when they get the staff or who, you know, is is is, is their enemy. But let's just say that they want to cause havoc on Earth and that they want to create some sort of war and that Shazam and his siblings are going to have to try and stop them. So away we go. Okay. So I'm sensing from this then, that sounds like a hefty plot line, but it's missing some of that humor we talked about that's in the first one. Yeah, definitely. It seems as though we were always going to get a sequel to this and the mm-hmm. positive critical reception, the positive commercial, uh, the, the commercial success of the first one, there was definitely going to be a Shazam 2. It took as long as it did because of, you know, for obvious reasons, the pandemic. But there might have been the thing of how do we, you know, repeat that trick again of making a fairly grounded superhero film, which is really more of a, a, a comedy. How do we, how do we, you know, repeat that trick? Unfortunately, they've kind of gone for the more is more approach because I said at the end of the first Shazam, you have this kid giving his powers to all of his friends, all of his foster siblings. And that's how we're starting now. So everybody's a superhero. And that's kind of, that was a nice place for the, for the first one to end, but it's a bad place for the second one to, to begin because that's too many heroes. You know, if everyone's a superhero, then who's the real superhero? We have this lovely story of, you know, a kid trying to hold on to this new family that's around them. You could do something with that, but then you have, these fairly kind of, you know, inoffensive, uh, ineffective villains coming in where you're not really sure, as I said in the synopsis there, you're not really sure what it is that they want or why they're why they're picking fights. We have that. We have the Justice League kind of madness happening around it where, you know, Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman might get mentioned every few minutes. Uh, we've got an awful lot of stuff about... Do you know, any of those guys show up, Wonder Woman or Batman, or can you not say... I don't think I should say, okay, but I okay. think that might be a, that might be a good enough answer for you. <laughs> yes, clearly, clearly. Uh, you've right. got too you've got too much happening there, you know, and not enough. For, it's 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 kind of ironic that for a film that has an awful lot to say about superheroes and you know all all the rest of it, it's not really doing that much. There's a lot happening, but nothing's really happening. Yeah, yeah that's okay. it. Yeah. And what about Helen Mirren? I mean, it could be anyone. Uh, it's, okay. <laughs> I mean, at this at this stage, it's kind of sad to see. You know, she she kind of does it in the Fast and Furious films too. <laughs> Helen Mirren just shows up and says a few things and gives a, a few cool looks, and that's the end of that character. And it's the same in Shazam, where again, I just I just thought, okay, it's it's Helen Mirren in a silly god superhero costume. What where where where's the great performance though? And you've got Zachary yeah. Levi who you know is very good at being that kind of playful man child who's kind of you know stumbling about the place trying to figure out how this, this superhero business works. But when you put him opposite Helen Mirren, he's clearly a little bit intimidated. Uh, so the yeah. performances are all off a little bit. And also there's there's this plot, and and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here, but there's this plot device that that involves a dome trapping off you know cutting off the city of philadelphia of philadelphia from the rest of the world and the second it happened i thought it's the bloody simpsons movie (laughs) where the thing comes down and they all get locked in the city yeah it's a it's a weird weird cross between the simpsons movie and 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 stephen king's under the dome and i thought you have some very intelligent people working i would hope working behind the scenes on this thing did nobody in the writers room stop and say we can't do that that was in the simpsons movie next idea so they're all of these ideas that we've seen in, in bigger better films and i think also can i just say one of the biggest crimes of this film and i would and, and i would knock off a star for this as well is that it literally interrupts itself in the middle to feature an advert for Skittles, which I, it, which I thought was so shameless and so tacky. It, it, it basically involves one of the characters figuring out a way to use Skittles in their battle with all of these CG nasties. And they, you know, they have the pack in full view. They literally say, John, taste the rainbow. And I thought this has to be the first film to interrupt itself with an advert. It's just so tacky. Good heavens, that sounds bizarre. Uh, well, look, that notwithstanding, is there a case here that, I don't know, DC are trying to make a Marvel movie and they've gotten too far away from Shazam because they're trying to throw lots of superheroes at this and have one of these really long convoluted plots that we see in a lot of Marvel movies? I mean, they may not be, but... No, that is true. I think um, 
Black Adam is connected to this Shazam world. They are essentially, you know, they're, they're working with the same powers and it's weird that the characters have never met each other on the screen. Mm. But Black Adam had this problem where it was bringing together all of these, you know, B-side DC superheroes uh, before they'd even finished introducing Black Adam in the first half an hour. So it was sort of like a, you know, a DC Justice League knockoff Avengers film when it was really supposed to be a solo thing. It's like, let, wh- why are you doing all of these team films before mm. you've done the solo adventures. Marvel yeah. did a property. DC are in an awful rush. And there's that sort of problem that we're seeing here again, where the story is in an awful rush to to give us this Avengers-type scenario. Here's the big bad, and here's the superhero team. And But no, you have to you have to do the groundwork first. Yeah. It, so it has that problem, but it also has another problem where you can tell not a, not a lot of attention has gone into, not as much attention has gone into the, 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 the story as, as you would have found in previous efforts because of what's going on behind the scenes dc and warner where this has been this huge big shake-up they're already looking ahead to the next batman the next superman the next wonder woman there's going to be a new justice league this film was made before all those decisions were made so it's sort of a case of let's just kick this out there and then forget about it and you can tell there's an awful lot of stuff in this film where you're thinking this just feels like one big expensive afterthought so they just wanted to almost get this out of the way and start again. It seems essentially, yeah, that, yeah, it, it looks that way, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the the enormous budget as well that you would have. I think it's somewhere around 100, 120 million, which is a lot of money, John, but not Marvel money. And you can see in the effects as well. This is this is not up to scratch. What are you going to say, stars wise, for Shazam: Fury of the Gods? I think. DC can and should do better. And these are likable characters. And there's something quite, and I, I thought that first one was a hoot. And there was something very lovable about these foster kids turning into superheroes. I think you could have made something grounded, something charming, you know, a, a brilliant superhero slash coming of age film with these characters. But instead they've just gone and made something noisy and quite joyless and charmless and, and way too reliant on CG effects. And again, the performances of Lucy Liu, of Helen Mirren, they've just, they're barely trying. So I think it's a great big disappointment. So I'll have to go with two stars. Yeah. A joyless Shazam. I mean, the world does not need that. Uh, he's meant to be pure joy. So that is two stars for Shazam, Fury of the Gods, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 17th of March. Chris, as I have you there, we were talking earlier in the show. It was Oscars week. A lot of disappointment for the Irish as well as success. Let's not forget. I read a piece you wrote earlier in the week. Uh, I saw on the Indo online and I agree with a lot of what you said. So just quickly, I suppose to summarize top line, you were like I somewhat mystified by the amount everything everywhere all at once brought home. Yes, I I think it's a good film. I think it's very it's it's a very good sci-fi that you know successfully combines uh, martial arts, you know, uh, carnage and action sequences, and these, uh, with you know this lovely story about essentially a mother trying to process you know uh, her family falling apart around her, and also trying to process you know something that her daughter. I won't spoil it for any anyone who hasn't seen it, but trying to process something that her daughter's told her and trying to understand that and. It's you know it, it is quite a fact. It's it's well performed, and I and I and I look forward to seeing what Daniel Kwan and da- Daniel Scheinert actually do in their next few films. But it's by no means perfect, and I think yeah. if, you st- if you stare at it too long, the whole thing just starts to fall apart. I don't think it's nearly as clever or as coherent as it thinks it is. And and and, and I think you know, look, it's it's great that for the performers and, and for A twenty four that it's had the success that it's had, but to award the best picture. And to award it Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, I'm, I can't say I was fully behind that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was saying earlier in the show, I mean, in 10 years time, I don't think people are going to be talking about it in the way they are about the Fablemans or indeed Banshees of Inish Aaron. Tell me this, uh, and I think we also share Martin McDonough, uh, Best Screenplay. I, I mean, I, I really thought that was a dead cert, to be honest. I thought it was a shoe-in um, because it's like looking at the... You know, the other nominees, it was certainly the most complete work. Uh, mm. It was the most poetic. It told the story with the beginning, middle and end. Uh, you know, it, it, it didn't rely on the effects on everything else that's happening in the film to, 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 to make its point. And I'm going back to everything everywhere again, which again, which again, it's a good film. It's just not the best picture of the year. And I think it's screenplay 
where you know it doesn't it starts off well and you, and you kind of think okay this is an interesting world that's been developed here and about an hour an hour and a half in you realize there's no rule book they are making this up as they go along and there's a few there, there's a there are a few illogical missteps in here you know and that's that's not a great screenplay you know that's yeah. so a great screenplay that's been well thought out and that knows exactly what it's doing is something like the banshees of inner sharon and i thought yeah. martin mcdonough whatever about the other eight nominations i really thought that was going home with that award and again with uh with, in, in terms of best director Steven Spielberg, for my money, was the best director of last year. I thought The Fablemans, there's been all this talk about how it's a return to form for Steven Spielberg. I don't think Steven Spielberg ever went off the boil, to be honest. I mean, I thought last year's West Side Story remake was just sensational. Uh, but The Fablemans... There is Ready Player One, of course, which didn't we, we, float my boat, but you know. We pretend that that only doesn't exist, John. <laughs> we just that's that's a blip. Everyone's allowed a blip, okay? Yes, but but, yes, but around around that film, you had the post, you had West Side Story. Uh, but yeah. w- with the Fablemans, it's his most personal work. It's it's certainly it's so how odd it is to see a story that so many other filmmakers and novelists have have done before. You know, kid trying to process their parents' divorce. To approach that in these new and extraordinary and life-affirming ways, as we saw in the in the in the Fablemans, that should be rewarded. Spielberg did that. He made yeah. he took something ordinary and he made something extraordinary of it. And he, from from my money, was the best director of last year. Yeah, I, I mean, I I would have been happy if it went to him or Martin McDonough, but I agree with you. The Fablemans was a beautiful movie, and the way Oscar works, I'm surprised that they didn't give it something, particularly best director, because it is a movie also about as well as his complicated childhood and the fictionalization. It's also a movie about making movies, and Hollywood yeah. traditionally love that kind of stuff, you know. So I was surprised by that as well, and. And just finally, best actor, Brendan Fraser. I mean, he's a good performance in a pretty poor movie in lots of ways. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why Colin didn't get it, to be honest. Here's the thing. The, Fraser is good in a terrible film, but his performance at the same time, and it's hard to, you know, I don't want to be criticizing the Brendan Fraser comeback story. He does seem like a genuine nice guy. There are very few of those in Hollywood. He is quite talented and I wish him all the best. But it's it's a performance that relies on prosthetics, that relies on far too many tears, that relies on an awful lot of, you know, manipulative monologues to to to, to make its point. Whereas Colin Farrell's character in, in The Banshees of Inna Sharon, we go off on a proper, and I hate to use this overused term, but we go off on a proper journey with him. Mm-hmm. And we see him, you know, at the beginning, the most optimistic, the 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 most that just the happiest, cheerful chap in Ireland. And by the end of it, that optimism, that innocence has been just stripped and robbed and broken down. And the performance is just one of the best of the year. And I don't, and, and just so that like listeners don't think it's just like, you know, a matter of national pride, even Austin Butler had won for playing Elvis, which again was a dodgy movie, but a great performance. If he won, I wouldn't have been saying as loudly the wrong actor won, but in this case, the wrong guy got it. Yeah, well, I agree with you, apart from I really liked Elvis. I didn't think it was dodgy at all, but I, I would have been happy as well with Austin Butler because he was he was fantastic in it and he, he became Elvis and fair play to him, lived the life for two years, it seems. So we're in a lot of agreement about that. I'm sure if I had a Sheen, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, I'd also be in agreement with you. Chris <laughs> Wasser, thank you very much. Thanks, John. After the break, the legendary director, Richard Eyre. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now opening this weekend in cinemas is Alleluia, a story about surviving old age. When a geriatric ward in a small Yorkshire hospital is threatened with closure, the hospital decides to fight back by galvanising the local community. They invite a news crew to film their preparations for a concert in the hospital to celebrate their most distinguished nurse. She's played by Jennifer Saunders. What could go wrong? It celebrates kind of the spirit of the elderly patients while paying tribute to the, I suppose, humanity of the medical staff with the limited resources and their ever-growing demand. The NHS is 75 years old and it's partially a love letter to that in, in a certain sense. It also stars uh, Derek Jacobi and Judy Dench in a smaller role. One of the head doctors is played by a newcomer, Bailey Gill, who gives a pretty powerful speech about the importance of the NHS. It was directed 
by Richard Eyre, the legendary film director and theatre director. He gave us notes on A Scandal, The Other Man, The Children's Act, Iris, that movie all about Iris Murdoch. He's 80 years of age, as you'll hear in this interview. And I had a chat with him about Alleluia and a bit more besides. You know, the NHS is a bit different to our health service here, but there, there are similarities, I suppose. Was your motivation for doing this, maybe having seen uh, Alan Bennett's play and just being so irritated by the bean counterism, let's call it, that's entering British health? Was that the motivation or it may not have been? But um, Part of the motivation, part of the motivation was... Um, uh, of course, being inspired by the play. Part of the motivation is that I've known Alan Bennett for a very long time and I've done his work before. Uh, I've directed his work, I've produced his his work and he's an old friend. Yeah. And part of it is simply that um, care of the ill and care of the old are two matters that are of great importance to me. Um care of the old, you know, I'm about to be 80. So, um, you know, I can no longer regard old people as those, you know, people that we don't bother to think about. Um, And uh, so that's the motivation. When are you going to be 80, just as an aside? Uh, Two weeks' time. Wow, you're looking very well on it. Well, thank you, thank yeah, you. Thank it must you. be it must be your schooling or something. T- tell me this then. Just you know, I, I read, I watched it, but I read one review of it that described it as a love letter to the NHS. But because I'm I'm from a bit of a distance to the NHS, do you see it that way? I wouldn't say a love letter to the NHS because um, I would say it's a provocation. For the NHS. It's a provocation yeah. to make the NHS what um Bally Gill's character believes it is. Mm. I and mean, he has a utopian view of the NHS, and that he's from outside the UK and coming to the UK, applying for UK citizenship, and having this absolutely idealistic notion of what the NHS is. And then on the other mm-hmm. side, you have Jennifer Saunders, who has spent years trying to make this imperfect model work. And, um, you know, in, in a quite uh, brutal and alarming way. Um, but yeah. that's, you know, a consequence of, well, here is her remit. How do you fulfill the remit? So... It, yeah. If it's a love letter, yes, it's it's a love letter to something that could be achieved, but at the moment is far from um, being in it in its uh, uh, perfect form. Um, yeah, and it just needs you know you've got to stand back and say what is it that we want of this organisation, mm-hmm. rather than just you know. Um, throwing haphazardly, throwing money and patching up um, a leak there and patching up a leak there. And um, we've got to say, what is it we want? How do we organise it? How do we manage it? How much does it cost? Are we prepared to pay for it? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, you know, this is a film show, so we we don't have to get into the politics of health. But in Ireland, we have similar problems and it doesn't seem to be just about money. Uh, There's a sense, let's give it lots of money, but that doesn't fix it. God help us. It really doesn't. No, no. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's organisation. Yeah. Yeah. So Judy Dench, although she's in the margins and oddly, there's a pun of sorts in there because she's a beautiful speech about margins in it and all. But her character is beautiful in it, but she's she's not one of the main protagonists. And there are many different protagonists in this, if, if it's possible to have many protagonists. But she it almost feels like, I, you know, you clearly love working with her because she is it your sense. She just improves anything you're doing. Well, of course. I mean, you put a camera on Judy and she just had that extraordinary knack of being able to, you you feel as if you can read her thoughts mm-hmm. when she's not doing anything with her face at all. And, and um, you have to resist having a permanent close-up 
of, of Judy because it's just a fascinating face that endlessly resonates with thought and, and feeling. Mm. The You know, you mentioned you're uh, approaching 80. I was actually talking last week for another film that's coming out to James Cosmo, uh, star of Game of Thrones and all sorts of things. And it's it's a romance story called My Sailor, My Love with two characters in their 60s and 70s. And I was remarking to them how it's somewhat unusual that we have love stories set in that age of someone's life. And as we mentioned, you're you're approaching 80. Your characters, most of them in this movie, are all getting older. They're in a geriatric hospital. Do you have a sense that we need to see more? You know, there's a lot of talk about equal representation at the moment, but we don't talk often about the elderly or the senior citizens in that same phrase of equal representation. Do you is it your plan that we should see more of these kind of representations? Well, I'm 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 a child of the sixties, or at least um, mm. Um, mm. I was in my twenties in the the sixties, and um, great time to be alive, by all accounts. Well, yeah, it it was, but the consequence of making a sort of fetish of youth in the sixties is that somehow we've got stuck and and discarded care of of. Um, and respect for old people. And that's something that I think my generation are, are guilty of. Plus mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, that families have become more and more atomized. So that sense of continuity from mm-hmm. grandparent to, to grandchild that you see is, is shown in the first two minutes of the film when you see um, the FaceTime conversation of, of, Bally Gill's character with his, you know, the the grandmother, the, the mother, the the his yeah. sister, and the, the the nieces, and you get a sense of here's a, a coherent family, and then during the film you get a lot of examples of lonely people or dysfunctional mm. families, and um, uh, I think that's had a considerable effect, and and also this. I mean, the obsession with being young is means that, you know, a lot of middle-aged people still want to believe that they're kids. They dress yeah. like kids. They behave yeah. like kids. You know? Yeah. And, I, I, um, I'm conscious of the fact I'm 47. I'm wearing a hoodie when I'm talking <laughs> to you. But anyway. <laughs> it's, um, but, yeah, so in um, the consequence of that is yeah. that I do think that old people get marginalised. Mm, yeah, I hear you. Tell me this, and it's not a spoiler, but towards the end of the movie, there's a kind of COVID coda to yes. it. Uh, was it very important for you, that fact that you were making a film about, you know, this geriatric hospital in the health service, that there be some reference to this bizarre two years? Absolutely. It, see, we had to have. Yeah. The, we absolutely had, because that was... That was the anvil on which the, mm. the NHS was, you know, hammered. Mm. And, um, you know, the consequences have been very, very considerable. We had to have that. And also, I think we had to have the conclusion of the um, Dr. Valentine say, OK, so I now see that the... NHS is far from perfect, but mm. still, this is what I think. And yeah, yeah. coming from somebody who has naively and innocently possessed the view that this or this institution is an ideal institution and learning that it's deeply flawed, then I think it's it's a very strong statement. I don't have a huge amount of time left. There's a huge amount of movies in your canon. I was particularly fond of Iris because we we had to do Iris in college where I went oh, for a third level. Yeah, we, we had to, I'd studied philosophy. So we did a lot of Iris Murdoch. And I remember, and I still remember the palpable sadness of Jim Broadbent's character, not just at her descent into losing who she was, but when she saw, and it's funny the things that stick out in her mind, but when he saw her 
sharing her love, let's say, uh, that she was unfaithful, for want of a better phrase, or or maybe wasn't bound for monogamy. Was that an important part of that story? Because when I look back on it now, that's one of the things that still strikes me. Jim Broadbent kind of looking through a door and going, yeah. no, you know? Ab- ab- absolutely was. Um, yes. And that's, I think, what makes that... If you if you talk about the film as a love story, mm. much more interesting than if he was just you know the yeah. devoted, untroubled yeah. husband. It's it's quite and she's quite a sort of conflicted character. Yeah. Um, so yes, that was essential. Tell that story. And then finally, your number one hit, your blockbuster, your Sergeant Pepper, as they say, in terms of economics, and was you know, and, and people knowing it was notes on a scandal. And yeah. I mean, that came. You know, you're 80 years young now, or just about to be, but you weren't in the first bloom of your career when that happened. And I'm always curious, like I was talking to Martin McDonough a while ago about what happened with three billboards. Were you? Far enough along the road to not have your head turned by the success of that movie. Uh, absolutely. And it's funny when you talk about that, and I think, was it a huge success? Yeah, probably yeah. it was. I think but, it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I didn't have my head turned in any way. And I think the there were several, I think there were four Oscar nominations. I didn't get invited to the Oscar ceremony. Oh, Okay. Um, and I've never received a penny of the back end payments, <laughs> okay. profits, you know. That. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I love the film and yeah. um, I think it's, I'm very, very proud of it. Okay, good. So, well, well, maybe there's an Oscar party in your future. Here's hope. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you, Richard. Thanks Thank very you. much Thank and happy you. birthday. Thank you. Has it got a mouse? You don't need a mouse, Mary. Everything is operated via the touch screen. Swipe on the icon like we did before. With greater gentleness, as though you've seen a speck of dust and wish to brush it away. Ah, (laughs) You put us all out of a job. I said that to my computer the day they digitalized the library. I was at the forefront of modernization. What do you wish me to record? The filmmakers say they simply want your point of view. For you to record what you see, to tell them what your life is like. I could tell you something about that chair, only I won't. A clip there from Alleluia, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 17th of March. Up next, remembering the great Dave Allen. You're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now... I want to bring you something a little different. Last week, I didn't have time for this, but it was the anniversary of the great Irish comedian Dave Allen. I don't think Dave Allen gets the credit or the kudos he deserves. When we talk about people like Dermot Morgan, who deserves great credit, don't get me wrong, but Dave Allen was a trailblazer. He largely made his career in the UK, and maybe that's why we don't have as much of an appreciation for him as we should, but he's very much, or very much was, an Irishman. He passed away in 2005. People called him a sit-down comedian because he had this trademark thing on his TV shows of sitting down telling jokes. He was one of the funniest Irish people, funniest people ever, committed to a TV screen or a stand-up stage. And a couple of years ago on the Pat Kenny Show, I profiled a whole range of comedians and I got a great reaction to Dave Allen. So on the anniversary of his passing from 2005 I'd love to bring you a little piece of this and I'm watching the coffin being lowered into the ground and I hear the priest say what I think in the name of the father and of the son and into the hole he goes (laughs) that's how I blessed myself for years (laughs) in the father son and into the hole he goes what did you say Most stand-up comedians stand, as the name implies. But Dave Allen sat on a high stool with a cigarette in one hand and a glass of whiskey in the other and hilariously observed the absurdities of life. Cue jumpers. You come across cue jumpers? And you're so polite, the English. You tolerate it. 
I've stood in queues, machine gun, and I go, why don't those people do something about that? I'm standing in the queue, full of nips in, I go, hey, hey, hey! Hey, you, you! You! What? The queue! There's a queue! We're all queuing! And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't notice it. I go, you didn't notice it! Eight people standing behind each other! What do you think it is, a gangbang? Dave Allen was a firm fixture on television screens from the mid-60s all the way up to the 90s. And he was also Irish. Well, a lot of people think that the Irish come across here because of work, economics, or even relig- religious persecution. It's got nothing to do with that. The reason we come to your country is because over here, you're a permissive society. In Ireland, we're not. Here, you have sex before marriage. In Ireland, we do not. We come to get our share. <laughs> you know, two Irish fellows talking about sex before marriage, and one tells the other, he said, what do you think about sex before marriage? He said, I don't think about it. <laughs> he said, well, I know I never had sex with my wife before we were married. Did you? He said, I have no idea. What's her name? <laughs> Alan was that rare thing, a comedian with a happy childhood. He was born David Tynan O'Mahony in Dublin and was actually the son of the managing editor of the Irish Times. His happy home life notwithstanding, what troubled the young comedian was the schools he was sent to, which were run by religious orders. He found them cruel places. And that aversion to religious authority was one of the defining characteristics of his comedy. I detested them so much. They interfered greatly with my freedom. They interfered with uh, my f- physicality. They hit me. They pulled my hair. They punched me. They demeaned me. And, I mean, I'm, now I kind of think about it. And I, I'm quite angry because none of them were, were qualified teachers. These were members of a religious order yeah. who were then yeah. teachers. But none of them had been trained as teachers. None of them. I mean, they, they beat you. That's what it was. I mean, if you, if you didn't learn Latin... They'd get it into you somehow. By the Carmelite nuns. The Gestapo in drag. <laughs> Have you ever burnt yourself? Yeah, I burnt myself on, on the candle. What was it like? Oh, very sad. Sore. Can you imagine that pain all over your body? That's what will happen to you if you do not love God. What do you think of that? I love him. I love him. When he came of working age, he initially pursued a career in journalism. But that didn't work out. And he actually ended up working in Butlins as a red coat entertainer. After learning his trade in Butlins, he started doing routines in working man's clubs. He got some gigs in Australia and ended up doing his own talk show called Tonight with Dave Allen in the mid-60s. That was a huge success. But marriage to his English wife made him long to return home. So he returned and hit the club circuit in the UK. And after various spots on TV, he landed his trademark show, Dave Allen at Large, on the BBC. This was a different type of show for its time. Sure, it had sketches, and they were very funny sketches. Watson, if the poison from this dart is not sucked from your posterior, within the next 15 seconds, you shall die. So what's going to happen? You're going to die. (laughs) But the most memorable aspect of the show was Dave just chatting to the audience from his high stool, with no props apart from his whiskey and cigarettes, calmly looking down the lens, telling stories and jokes. You get the other fellow walking down the road with a little penguin on a piece of string. (laughs) The policeman said, Hey, where did you get a penguin? She was walking down the road and, and it was there. Little penguin and it's all on his own. He said, "We'll take him to the zoo." Off he goes. Next day, the policeman was there, coming around the corner. Is he drunk with the penguin? He said, "I thought I told you to take that penguin to the zoo." He said, "I did, and he liked it, and I'm taking him to the library now." One of the regular topics for Alan's line of ridicule was religion. Get it done gets up in the morning and leaves and walks down the corridor. And another nun looks at her and says, it's a difficult thing to say, another nun. (laughs) And says, you got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. (laughs) 
she goes on down, and another nun says, you got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. And this happens 15 times, and by then she's livid. And she meets the mother superior. And the mother superior is just about to open her mouth, and the sister says, don't tell me that I got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> and the mother superior said, I wasn't going to say that. I was just going to say, what are you doing with the bishop's shoes on? <laughs> A sketch in which the Pope did a strip tease brought many protests and a ban from RTE. But Alan lived to tell his tales and indeed his jokes and was hugely successful during the 70s and into the 80s. Alongside his comedy on TV, he also made documentaries about aspects of English life, such as a show about England's greatest eccentric, as well as doing regular stand-up performances. He maintained a happy private life. Although divorcing from his first wife in 1983, he then entered a relationship with Karen Stark, a theatrical producer, with whom he seemed very content. With his two children from his first marriage, he enjoyed being out of the spotlight and took a break from TV until 1990. It's where the comedians get better as they get older and move into middle age and beyond. But that's what happened in Alan's case. His comedy became more observational and less about stories and jokes and more about the things that concerned him in the world and indeed his family. I'm going to teach you to read the clock. I'm going to teach you to read the time. Why? Why? Because it's important that you know the time. Why? Because how would you know when to get up to go to school? Mummy would make me. (laughs) What if mummy wasn't there? You'd wake me. What if we both weren't there? Wouldn't go to school. (laughs) How would you know when breakfast was? I'd be hungry. Shut up! And although he wasn't really making jokes about the church anymore, there was still lots of controversy. His use of a four-letter word in this famous routine caused mayhem and was mentioned in the House of Commons. We live a life to the clock. All right? You wait to the clock. You go to work to the clock. You clock in to the clock, you clock out to the clock, you come home to the clock, you eat to the clock, you drink to the clock, you go to bed to the clock, you get up to the clock, you go back to work to the clock. You do that for 40 years of your life, you retire, what they f***ing give you? A clock! Alan's last TV show, called Simply Dave Allen, ended in 1994. In his later years, he retreated from the limelight, preferring to concentrate on painting and on being with his family. He died in 2005 at the age of 68. His wife was pregnant with a child, unfortunately he'd never get to meet. But all in all, it had been a happy life, and a funny one. Here lies Dave Allen, a comedy fool, who drank and told gags as he sat on his stool. His last words on earth, the atheist wretch. Time for religion, here is a sketch. Yes, a little report there on the legend that was Dave Allen. That is it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show this week. I will remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Although this Saturday it was coming to you at the hour of 9pm because of the rugby. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, please do so. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I would love to know what you made of the Oscars. So do get in touch if you want to share any of your thoughts on that or anything else. Next week on the show, I'll be bringing my interview with Paul Meskell and Emily Watson for their new movie, God's Creatures. So more of that next week. In the meantime, I will bid you a fond farewell Enjoy the remainder of your weekend. A happy St. Patrick's Day to you, and I'll talk to you next week.